Well, we'll be in uh, Genesis really through the beginning of Joshua today. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to uh, break those out and and hopefully follow along. I don't know about you, uh, but it seems to me that um, people are really ready for, for Christmas this year. Um, I know stores, they always get their stuff out earlier than I think they should, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's commercialism around the holidays. But what I wasn't prepared for was uh, my, my neighbors. Uh, one neighbor in particular, um, the morning after Halloween, put up his Christmas lights. And I'd, I, he's never done that before. I know I've, I've never seen him do that before. Um, and, and then other neighbors in my neighborhood had Christmas lights up just way earlier than, than I expected. Um, Christmas trees, right? Fake Christmas trees, you can put, put them up as early as you want. And I noticed more and more houses with, with Christmas trees up. We went to get uh, our, our Christmas tree last week, went to the tree farm, same farm we go to every year, and it was packed. I mean, way, way more than I had ever seen it before. I, I think with everything that's happened this year, people are just ready for Christmas. And, and, and in some way, uh, I, I think maybe they, they know that there's a hope there, that there's something really, really good about Christmas, but I don't think uh, our world knows uh, the hope that, that the Christmas story really provides. Um, and, and as Scott just said, if we start the Christmas story just at the manger, we miss, uh, we miss so much uh, of what we need to know. Uh, yes, we need to know that, that in that manger, Emmanuel, which means God with us, our Savior was born. But it's not, it's not the beginning of the story. That's like jumping into like book three of a series or, or joining a movie 45 minutes late. Even if you can kind of figure out what's going on, you've missed so much. And so it is with the Christmas story. If we start with Messiah born in the manger, we, we don't really understand why this baby had to be born. Or even if we were to go back to the angels announcing to the shepherds, we don't know why this Savior had to become and how this baby could bring peace. So we have to go back to the beginning, right, in Genesis. You can open your Bibles to Genesis, uh, to, to the garden with Adam and Eve. And what we find is that they were with God, like Scott said. So before eating the fruit um, uh, of the knowledge tree of, of good and evil that was off limits, they were with God. They had a relationship with God. They spoke with him. God was not far off. And I think there are a lot of people today that believe in a God, believe in, in some ultimate being or higher power or something like that, and they view whatever that thing is that they believe in as, as being distant, as being far off. And we see right in the beginning of the creation story that that's not how it was. God was right with his creation. He was right there with them. He spoke with Adam and Eve. They spoke with him. It was a it was a real relationship. Um, we have to understand that that's how it started, that God was with his creation that he loved. This is what God wanted. This is what God designed, that God himself would dwell with his people. All right, God with us doesn't just start in the New Testament. God with us is all throughout the, the biblical story. God with his people was the plan from the beginning. 
Uh, we remember in Genesis 1, we find out God says, let's create man in our image. We're created in what's called the, the image of God, the Imago Dei. And part of being in, in the image of God, we were talking about this with some people the other day, that it means we're relational like God is. We were made for relationship. God himself in the Trinity is in perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's some people that, that think that maybe God created people because he had some relational need, and that's not true. God is perfect in every way, including relationally. He, he created humanity out of his goodness, out of his grace. He created so that his creation could be in a relationship with him. So it's all by God's grace and his goodness. So he creates Adam and Eve so that they could know their creator, that they could know the triune God. And we know what happened. Uh, we know that, that they disobeyed. Adam and Eve believed a lie. They thought that they knew better than God did that they could and should decide what is best for themselves. They put themselves in the place of God and, and they rejected God's good design and disobeyed the only thing that he told them not to do. And the relationship was broken. They'd rejected God. They decided to rebel against God. And scripture tells us that sin came through Adam to all of humanity all of us rebel against our creator. All of us want to sit on the throne and call our own shots. So now in the creation story, death is in the equation. They're kicked out of the garden. There's all these curses. Birth is going to be super painful now. Work would be tedious. And, and yet even in the curses, there's this hint of hope. As, as the serpent is cursed, he's told that, that the woman would have this offspring. And this offspring, like, like Nate read, would, would crush the serpent's head. And, and in the beginning of this story, maybe we don't understand how bad it is, even with those things I just mentioned, but by Genesis 6, we find out how broken the world is, how desperately wicked it is, how broken humanity's relationship is with God, their creator. We realize that sin, it's like a cancer that just spreads and permeates and invades every part of us, every part of creation. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, or you can think plan, every intention of the thoughts of his heart uh, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. This is one of the low points of Scripture. I'm not saying it's necessarily the lowest, but it's a low, low point in Scripture. This description of humanity is telling that the heart, uh, that our heart is, is continuously bent towards evil, that this is our default mode. And you know, if you've read your Bible and you go on through the rest of Scripture, it's like a broken record of people just continuing to rebel against God, people loving and pursuing the rejection of God. And God judges them, and God also he keeps showing this remnant, his grace and his love, and invites them to return to him. But here in Genesis 6, we see it grieved God. You aren't grieved over something that you just don't care about. You only grieve over something that really matters to you. And if you're reading this story for the first time, 
I can imagine, uh, thinking about God, seeing what he's created, rebel against him. And you can imagine him going, you know what? I'm done. I don't need this. And just walking away. But that isn't what happens, though it looks like it for a second. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And, and uh, I'm guessing most of us, maybe all of us, are really familiar with this story, but we can't miss how bad it is, right? God says it's so bad that he wipes out almost all of humanity, right? That everyone deserves judgment. The psalmist in Psalm 14.3 writes, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Right? Everybody is in the same boat pun fully intended there, even Noah and his family, right? We, we cannot get confused and think that, oh, Noah was good enough to be saved. No, that's, that's not what we take away from this story. What we see is that everyone deserves judgment, and we need God, by his grace, to save us like he did with Noah and his family. And, and verse 8 is that, it's that glimmer of hope. It, it's that light in the darkness um, my kids, my whole family, uh, they love uh, Christmas lights. And they, they start pleading with me to put up Christmas lights way before I'm comfortable with it. Um, way before Halloween, they're like, can we put up Christmas? I, maybe this summer they ask me. I don't, I don't remember. But they ask me really, really soon, and they ask me often. And it's not like I don't like Christmas lights. I, I love Christmas lights. Um, I think as Christians, we should love Christmas lights. Even if you don't want to put them up on your own house, uh, we, we should love that Christmas lights are a part of celebrating because it's a picture of our hope that we're in a world that is dark. We are surrounded by darkness everywhere. Imagine for Noah and his family how dark the world must have felt. Right? They, they were living in this world that was just described as, as total wickedness. And then the flood comes and everyone they knew, right? people they liked, people they didn't like, people they'd only met once, everyone they knew but their family died in judgment. It must have seemed like such a dark place, but God made a way for Noah and his family. And we'll see, especially next week as we get into the promise, that, that God's promised this, this real hope in the midst of darkness, that God would send the Messiah who would be this bright, shining light, this hope in a dark, dark world that everyone needs. And Noah, we're told, he finds favor and throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we'll keep seeing that God will save his sinful people. The story of Noah helps us see that judgment is, is real. It's absolutely terrifying. And the only way to escape judgment is for God to save you. God makes a covenant with Noah. And really, this covenant is with all of humanity. It's made um, at the, the recreation of the earth after the flood. It's ratified by a sacrifice in Genesis 8. And God promises that he'll never flood the whole earth again. He promises to preserve the stability of nature, which is necessary if he's going to enter into history and save his people. 
So the whole earth really is a beneficiary of this covenant. And I think it reminds us of God's love for all that he's created and it foreshadows that he will renew all things. But even after this, this recreation, this, this do-over of the earth, after the flood, humanity is still in rebellion. They don't want to worship God. They don't want to make God's name great. They want to make their name great. They, their, their desire is for themselves to be great. Jumping into Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, who, who later becomes Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God picks this man, Abram, not because he was great, not because he, he had the potential to, to be a great leader of a new up and coming nation. He picked him and he said he was going to bless him. He said that he was going to make this nation come from him, that he was going to lead him to a land. And don't miss what's at the end there. He says that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So early on in scripture, if we're paying attention right in Genesis, we see that from the get-go, God's intention was always to use his people to bless the, the nations. That people from every nation would be blessed by God through his people. As dire as the world is at this point in Genesis, there's a hope that God will fix what humanity has broken in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. Uh, jump, though, to Genesis 17:1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude, a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, to you, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And then he says, and I will be their God. And you notice as we hear how this deal's going down, God is the one that's making it happen. And there's a lot of observations we can make here, but I just want to point out the last words. He says, I will be their God. That is what he has always wanted. He wants to be your God. He wants to be in relationship with you, the relationship that you were created for. This is the relationship that every relational desire we feel in life points to. It's, it's, it's pointing to this knowing God, this intimacy with the Lord. That's what we're made for, God with us. So Abraham was promised that he'd be the father of, of all these nations, but him and his wife were childless. And God eventually uh, gives them, in their old age, a son that they name Isaac. 
This is hardly a nation, but it's certainly a necessary step in the right direction. Eventually, after many years, Abraham dies. Um, Isaac, he has a wife. They're unable to have children. He prays. God gives him twins. Um, eventually, there's a famine, and, and we come to Genesis 26. You can turn there. Uh, Genesis 26, Isaac is considering what, what do we do? Where do we go? In, in verse 2 of Genesis 26, it says, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you uh, and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So God's promise, his blessings continue from Abraham in to Isaac, verse 24 of chapter, uh, verse 24 of chapter 26, it says, And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And we jump clear to Genesis 28. Um, Isaac's son Jacob has a dream, and, and God reveals himself to him and continues the promise, picking up partway into uh, verse 13. Of chapter 28. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. So again, we, we see the, the promises continue in, into Jacob now who will later be named Israel, the father of the Israelite nation. He, he, he continues, God continues his promise to him that he will make him a great nation, that he will give him the land, that he'll bless all the families of the earth through him and that God will be with him, that he will not leave him. And by providence, uh, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, is sold into slavery by his jealous older brothers. And Joseph's story, if you know it or if you don't know it, no one could make it up. All the, the twists and turns in the plot are, uh, it is wild. But what's clear over and over again is that God is with Joseph. Even those over him could see that, that God was clearly with Joseph. That's why Joseph had the success that he had. And the author makes, makes it a point to tell the readers that, that God was with him, and specifically God's steadfast love was on Joseph. This perfectly stable, dependable love of God the Father was with Joseph. And that was true when his brothers threw him in the pit. That was true when, when they decided to sell him into slavery. That was true when he was falsely accused by his master's wife. It was true when he was thrown into a dark prison. God was with Joseph. His love was with Joseph. And eventually, 
God would use Joseph to save Jacob's family, to save this, this young nation from another horrible famine. Joseph would become the second in command in Egypt, and he would be able to move his whole family um, to Egypt with him, saving them from the famine. In Egypt, they thrived. They, they grew. God was faithful to the promise that he made clear back to Abram when he couldn't even have a kid and, and affirmed it to Isaac and, and to Jacob. And a lot, obviously, had happened, but God was completely true to his promise. He continued to bless and continued to be with his people every step of the way. Israel grew so much that Egypt felt threatened by them. And they decided, hey, we need to make them our slaves now. Otherwise, they're going to overthrow us at some point. They're going to team up with some other nation. So they held them captive. They, they abused the Israelites. And the end of Exodus chapter 2 tells us that the people cried out to God, and God heard them. God, God was going to rescue his people, just like he rescued Noah and his family that needed to be saved. God, uh, God's people needed God to rescue them. They were slaves. There was nothing that they could do about it. They needed God to intervene. They needed, they needed him to save them. And this is a critical point in, in the story of Scripture. And, and throughout the Bible, it'll keep coming back to the Exodus story. This story is looked back over and over again. The point is that we're all enslaved, but, but Egypt isn't our master. We're enslaved to sin and we cannot save ourselves. We needed God to save us. We need God to send his savior. Exodus 3, 5. This is Moses at the burning bush. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, uh, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of, of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses says, who am I, God, to, to do this? And all God responds with, all he has to say is, I will be with you. Right? And this is what we need to remind ourselves all of the time. If you know Christ, God is with you. God is faithful. Believers in Christ, we need to hear these words in all of life's circumstances. I wonder how much better 2020 would have been for us if we would have remembered that God was with us and trusted 
that God, in, in every circumstance, every challenge, every disappointment, every crushing blow, that God was with us. How many times have we forgotten what it means that God is with us? His presence changes everything, or, or at least it, it should. Right? If we know that God is with us, it should change absolutely everything. Well, Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him exactly what God says to do, and it makes it worse for Israel. So Moses comes back to God. He tells him, hey, I said what you told me to say, and now it's worse. You didn't deliver your people. Exodus 6, 6, God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And God does deliver them from slavery. And he is with them. He travels with his people. He said that he would be with them. And that's exactly what he does. But then he does something that, that we've probably grown accustomed to, but it's shocking in the story. He has them build a tabernacle, which is a, a, it's a, it's a portable uh, temple, right? It's this tent that, that travels with the people because he wants to live with his people. He, he commands them to do this. And, and this is uh, an incredible picture uh, to me of, of God's desire to be with his people. But it's also a, a picture of what a problem our sin is. God sets up, he has him set up the tabernacle right in, in the middle of the Israelite camp, which is incredible that, that God has, has, has made a way for him to be with his people. But you look at what they have to do. Right? He gives them all these instructions for the offerings that have to be made because it, it will not work with, without sacrifices being made, without their, atone, their sins being atoned for because God is that holy. They are that sinful. Uh, there's this entire sacrificial system that has to be followed just so that God can have his, his tent set up among his people. And it's incredible that God is with his people but it's not, it's not like back at the garden, not, not, not yet at least. Only the priests can enter. The, the, the high priest alone can enter the, the Holy of Holies where God's presence was once a year. Uh, there, was, there was so much bloodshed over and over again that it took to make this work, but God was going to be with his people. He was going to make a way for sin to be atoned for so that he could dwell with them. Exodus 29, 45, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And up to this point in their story, there, there certainly had been moments of, of faithfulness to the Lord, to Yahweh, but those moments were fleeting and, and they're overshadowed by how quickly the people would turn from God. And yet we see over and over again the great lengths that God goes to. His steadfast love doesn't leave them even though they're rebellious people. 
Well, eventually Moses dies, but, but um, God's favor does not die with Moses. God provides a new leader, Joshua. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? And he's speaking to Joshua here. He says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You imagine being in Joshua's shoes. Moses, your mentor, who, who you looked up to, who you learned everything from, is dead. And now you're supposed to lead this, this up-and-coming nation. And it's a nation that has a history of complaining and rebelling against their leaders. It's pretty obvious why God keeps telling Joshua, I'll be with you. Be strong and be courageous. Joshua 3.7 Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And that changes everything, doesn't it? God's presence changes everything. If you don't know God, uh, this life can be really scary. Uh, there are situations um, that, that I'm, I'm just not sure how a person even faces without the Lord in their life. Uh, death is, is scary if you don't have God. A pandemic can be scary if, if you don't have God in your life. And if you've heard about God's faithfulness to sinful, rebellious people today, I just ask, are you ready to trust him, to turn from sin and turn to God to save you? Why would you go through life Without him, God sent his son, the Christ, to suffer and to die in your place. He was sacrificed so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be given life. God made the way to be with you if you will trust in him. Believers, since you have a relationship with Yahweh, you're never alone. There's never a situation that you face without God Almighty. No decision in your life is without God there. You don't face a scary diagnosis without God or, or a brutal treatment on your own. You don't face the heartache of, of a loved one lost by yourself. No matter what comes in life, God is with us. Do we live like God is with us? I, um, as I look around today, I see um, a, a lot of Christians, and I'm, I'm talking beyond our church, I'm just talking about people that I know, a lot of Christians right now, and, and they seem um, pretty scared. I see a lot of fear in Christians, and, and don't get me wrong, there are times when I'm afraid. Um, but I'm, I'm challenged by, man, if I really believe that God is with me, fear does not make sense. And I'm not saying we throw out wisdom. And we we want to be prudent. But what is there to be afraid of when God is with us? God is with his people, and that should give us great hope. It should give us great courage in life. And, and I hope that this season of Advent really is a, a building up of, of anticipation of the coming of Christ. And, and that by the time we get to Christmas Day, we're just ready. We're ready to celebrate the Messiah who has come into the world and, and, and that we do have God with us and that we also grow in our anticipation of the return of Christ.